Philippians 3.10, Paul says, that I may know him, that I may know Jesus and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of you who are mature think this way, and if in, any, if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have told you and now tell you even with tears, they walk as the enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we shall await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. I'm going to talk to you this time and then the next time that we're together. I'm going to finish this up, but I want to talk to you about the first part of this. I'm going to tell you there are some essentials for victory in your Christian life. I'm not a how-to preacher. I'm not a five steps to this kind of guy. That's just not the way God's wired me. But, but even though that is true, I do want to say there are times in Scripture where the Lord puts a beacon, a beam of light on something, and he, he marks it as an essential. And the Apostle Paul is calling us to do something you don't find too many Bible writers do in, in the Word of God. He's saying... I want you to look at me and do what I do. Now, that sounds a little arrogant. I, I, I don't feel comfortable about telling you to do that in my life, but let's think through it for a second. If you're following Jesus, if you're going hard after the Lord, if your heart is, is fully angled toward him, is it, is it wrong to tell people, yeah, live like me? Or is that actually great advice? It's, it's awesome advice if you're actually doing that, and Paul was doing that. And so I want to say, okay, if Paul has got this victorious, abundant life happening, it didn't happen on accident, and while it's true that God in his full and sovereign rule over the entire cosmos, he, he does a lot of things for us in grace, there are other things as believers that we must do if we're going to walk in victory. And some of those things are absolute non-negotiables. There are some things like what I'm going to share with you tonight as we are going to either enter into that, hopefully, or move further into that. These, these are the things that really are foundational to the Christian life. And so let's, let's just go through verses 10 through 14. That's probably about as far as we're going to get tonight. Um, but let me, let me just start with this. This has to be the constant heart posture for the Christian. What am I talking about heart posture? I'm talking about how you position yourself, how you posture yourself in your heart towards the Lord. 
What is your attitude towards the Lord? What are you expecting from the Lord? What are you entrusting to the Lord? First of all, Paul gives us the essential ingredient. This is the number one essential ingredient in victorious Christian living. What is it? It's hunger. Cultivating the highest hunger. Paul says this, and it's right there in the first few words. Here's the driving force in Paul's life. That I may know him. That he might know Jesus, and specifically the power of his resurrection, and share in his sufferings. We'll talk about that. Becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Let me tell you this. I'm going to give. I'm going to tell you something about yourself. Whatever you hunger after most, that's where your life goes. Your entire life takes up the course of your highest hunger. Your highest hunger is leading you. It's also behind you, driving you. You are motivated by whatever internally it is that you prioritize the most, whatever you hunger after. Think with me, what's going on in our culture right now? We, our culture trains us that, to, to starve after certain things. The number one thing that the culture teaches you and I to hunger after is money. It's the number one thing. Money is the God of the United States of America, and everything in our culture is orchestrated and and orbiting this, this false, hollow promise that if you can have just a little more, or if you can hit the pay dirt, if you can get the mother load, then then everything that you need and want and desire, including pleasure and happiness and peace and joy and nonstop leisure, if you can just get money, that's what the culture tells you. And so the whole format of the Western culture, the United States of America, is, is hungering after more stuff. Now, it doesn't mean every single human being is. It just means that's the vibe in the culture. And of course, along with the hunger after money, you've got all of the other things. You've got, you've got beauty, you've got fame, you've got success, you've got sex, you've got, you've got uh, substances and drugs and alcohol and all the stuff that so many of us used to chase after because we were hungering after something to fill up the empty spot inside of us. And that's just human nature. So I'm not being like, you know, I'm not mad about it or anything. I'm just telling you that's the way it is. But what's amazing is if the Christian can cultivate her highest hunger to be like Paul's, what is it? A personal deepening knowledge of Jesus Christ. Then that's what's going to drive you. I'm gonna tell you, what there is an engine that is pulling the train of your life. And there are some things that we need to take out of that engine compartment and consider that we might need to realign and say, okay, so the Apostle Paul's life was characterized by this hungering after knowing God. Now, friends, this is not knowing about God. How many of you grew up in church but were as lost as a dolphin in the desert? Anybody? That was me. I I grew up in church. I knew about God probably from the womb. Um, I remember getting my first Bible when I was like six years old. My dad wrote something in it with some verses and stuff, and I think I read it for about five minutes and put it in the closet. That was just the way we rolled, but I, was, I had a bad drug problem at age eight. My parents drug me to church every Sunday, every Sunday night, every Wednesday night. That's, I mean, we were just constantly going, being drugged to church and everything. So I knew all about the Lord, but I didn't know him. 
Um, I, I got baptized at age 14 at a Christian camp and got all the goosebumps and everything. And, you know, my denomination told me once you're baptized, you're perfect. And so I was like, man, what a deal, man. I got in the pool and got dunked by the preacher and now I'm perfect. And I thought, what an awesome deal for me. But I proceeded to live like hell, literally, for, for the next 10 years. Why? Because I knew about him, but I didn't know him. But here's what happened. At age 24, Jesus Christ introduces himself to me in a moment of my repentance and brokenness, and I bowed and I surrendered, and he radically saved me, and so I met him. So now I could, I could theologically say, I know Jesus, not just knowing about him, but I know him. But guess what? I barely knew him. I only knew him enough for him to take what was wrong off of me and give me what was right. But the last 21 years, excuse me, 20, I don't know how long I've been saved, 25 years, God help me with math. 94 to whatever we're at right now, 25 years. So however long it's been, help me, Lord. Ever since then, I've been learning him and knowing him. It's like any other relationship. And I'm going to tell you, the more I know him, the more I recognize him that I barely know him. It's not because of negligence. It's not because of indifference. It's not because I'm bored with the Almighty. It's simply that the more I know him, the more glorious he becomes. The more immeasurable his love is, the more unfathomable his mercy and grace is. And so Paul said this. Paul said, all of that stuff that I accomplished, all of his disciplines, all of his religion, all of his morality, all of his success, all of his attainments, he said, the reason why they are dung is because I met Jesus Christ on the Damascus Road and I was ruined for the world from that point on. You see, when you start encountering the Lord, Nothing else you encounter really matches it. And Paul says this. It's almost a, a yearning that he's expressing here, that I might know him. Now, remember who's writing that. It's the guy who had visible bodily revelation from Jesus. He met the resurrected Son of God. He, he got caught up to the third heaven in a supernatural. He said, I don't know if I was in my body or I was out of my body, but he said he got connected in a supernatural vision that God told him things that he couldn't repeat to anybody else. Paul's also the guy that is going around casting demons out of people. Matter of fact, there was one dude, he didn't cast a demon out of this guy, but this guy was wanting to prostitute the ministry and, and buy the power of God. And Paul literally looked at the dude and he says, you're going to be blind for a little bit. And the guy is, is stricken with blindness. Paul's not a guy you want to mess with. Paul's more connected to the Lord than anybody we have ever met. He's raising the dead. He, he's healing people. His theology is incomparable. He wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, and we wouldn't even really understand the Christian life were it not for the Apostle Paul. And Paul's sitting there writing to a little church in, in the uh, Philippian territory, and he's saying, yeah, I just want to know him. I'm thinking if Paul needed to know him and yearn to know him, how much more you? How much more me? But notice he gets specific. He says, I want to know the power of his resurrection. Friends, this, is, this has got to... This has got to start gripping our heart. We have hidden behind our theology to the point where now an unbelieving world looks at the church in America and says, y'all don't really believe what you say you believe. 
Because we are so much stronger on the wording of our theology than we are actually operating in the power of who that theology represents. And there has got to be a place in our lives, both individually and corporately, where we cannot hide behind our statements of faith anymore. Now, I'm a theological guy. I, I, don't, I don't have any tolerance for unbiblical theology. It will not be preached here. It will not be proclaimed. It doesn't need to be disseminated. And there are times where we must call out bad theology. So I'm not saying that I'm indifferent to theology. What I'm saying is this. Paul says, I got to know him and I need to know the power, the power of his resurrection. Paul understood that there was a war, a conflict going on between the power of hell and the power of God. And God can do whatever he wants at any time. He could incinerate every trace of evil and purge it out of the cosmos whenever he wanted. But that's not the way God set up things. What God has set up is that he wants to bring revelation of who he is through his church. God chooses to partner with us. He chooses to manifest through us. He can do it independently of us, but most of the time the heartbeat of the Lord is that he wants to reveal his goodness and his glory and his power through people that will wait on him, yield to him, and then believe that he'll actually work through him, uh, through them. And so he is, he is saying here, I need to know the power of his resurrection. Paul had more power in his right pinky than I've ever had in my life. And Paul's saying, there's more, there's more, there's more. It's, 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 no, it's no wonder that Paul would want to operate and know Jesus more in that, that, that interpersonal experience, that, that being used of God through the power of his resurrection. Paul wanted to experience it uh, not only to his life, but through his life. But then he adds something that I believe, this is my personal opinion, you don't have to agree with me. If you want to know why I believe we don't have the great display of resurrection power in the church in the 21st century. It's because we are afraid of the next part of the verse. Paul said, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection that I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And that's where most Western evangelicals say, Go back to the resurrection part, preacher. Let's talk more about that. It's, it's very common, if you're new to your Bible, I'm just going to give you this. Um, crucifixion, dying, necessarily precedes resurrection. For something to be resurrected, it must first have died. And we, we long for resurrection power. I'm not being critical here. I'm trying to help us here. I'm, I'm preaching to me, okay? I'm preaching to me, and I hope it's bouncing off and landing where it needs to land on some of y'all. The reality is, is that um, the reason why we don't, we don't operate collectively in the Western, the American 21st century church, the reason why we're not operating in resurrection power is because we're still alive. We haven't died yet. There's still too much of us. Remember the old-time preacher? I think it was D.L. Moody. Um, he said, yep, the Scripture teaches in the book of Romans that we are living sacrifices. The problem with living sacrifices is they keep crawling off the altar. And it's true. Because we, as soon as trouble, as soon as loss, as soon as pain, as soon as resistance, as soon as warfare comes, 
The tendency for the American church, maybe not you, maybe not me, but let's just speak broadly. The tendency is we want to run and hide. Anything to make the bad go away. Anything to make the, the, the warfare stop. So most people don't engage in warfare under the point of triumph. What they do is when warfare hits, they go and hide or they pull back. I've literally counseled people years ago, counseled a man. He's like, Jeff, I was pressing into the Lord, but the more I did, the more the devil fought me and I don't want to do that. So I just backed off the Lord. And I thought, do you, I mean, it's one thing to do it, but do you, you're actually telling people that that's what you're doing. But the thing is, is he was expressing what a lot of people do. Paul is saying this, I so want to know Jesus that I don't want to miss anything, including his suffering, including his death. Um, Paul would ultimately give his physical life, but he's speaking here to dying to all the things that we must die to if we want to experience resurrection power. The number one thing that I need to die to, I will not put this on you, the number one thing I need to die to, I, it's not the world. I don't need to die to the world. That's not top of the list. I need to die to the world, but that's not top of the list. Uh, it's, it's not even um, the, the devil. You know, I, I just got to die to the devil and his temptations and his attack. I just got to die to that. So the resurrection, that's not even number one. The number one thing I need to die to is me. I'm the biggest problem I've got. You're the biggest problem you've got. You know why? Because human nature wants to insulate itself and protect itself and isolate itself and incubate itself so that no struggle touches. And we want to operate in some kind of fictitious glory cloud from the safety of our own insulated lives. But the Lord is saying, no, if you will follow me, take up your cross, follow me daily, and if you want to know me, I'm going to go to places where you're going to have to die to yourself. And if you want resurrection power, I'm going to give it to you. But I can only bring resurrection power in the places that have experienced first a crucifixion. And so when we're looking at the church in America, and again, this message may not need to hit you, but maybe it'll go somewhere. Maybe somebody somewhere will hear this on TV or they'll hear it on the, on the website or on the podcast or whatever that, 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 that will understand, look, you, we all want resurrection power. We should. I mean, good night alive. Who doesn't want to operate at a higher level of the power of the Holy Spirit? Who doesn't want to have Jesus's power? Release. We already have it within us. We're talking about having it released from us. And, and who doesn't want that? But, but the real deal is this, is that we're too alive. So Paul says this. He says, yeah, I, Jesus, I want to know you so bad that I don't even want to miss the part of you and that experience that suffered, that, that took a cross. He says, by any means possible so that I can attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Paul is simply saying this. There's a lot of different thoughts about what does he mean attain to the resurrection of the dead. Let me just tell you right now, I'm not going to split the, I'm not going to parse out the verse. I'm going to tell you big picture what he's saying. Paul's saying, I want to remain willing to pay whatever cost necessary to know Jesus to the fullest possible extent that a human being can know him. That's the hunger that drove Paul. Um, would it help you to hear me say, I'm not there? Does that make you feel better? You're probably saying, yeah, we already knew that about you, man. 
Uh, I'm not there. Maybe you are. I'm not there yet, but I want to be. And by the way, Paul is saying this. He's about to tell us he's not there either. He's saying he is willing to keep going there, but watch this. So let's go down to the next couple of verses. Beyond cultivating the highest hunger of that I may know him, that I may know him, I want to know him, I want to know him. You have to refuse to settle prematurely. Look at what Paul says in verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on. I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind. Now, this is practical. I love this because the great apostle Paul is writing that little church at Philippi, and I'm going to tell you, it must have encouraged their hearts to hear him say, yeah, I'm, guys, I'm not there yet. I'm going there. I'm pressing into that. I'm hoping to be there. I'm not there yet. As I'm writing this letter to you, I want you to know I haven't already obtained that level of knowing him. He says, but I am pressing on, and I'm going to make it my own. Do you hear the confidence in that? It's holy confidence. It's not arrogance. It's not spiritual strutting. Paul is, is sold out. He's completely sold out for Jesus. He's literally saying, that I, have, I have divested myself of all of these things I used to live for. I have put them in their proper category as, as you know, manure. They're, they're worthless. He says, I am going hard after Jesus and he says this, I'm pressing on. I, th I think we just might want to just linger over that statement for a minute. Most Christians don't quit on God. They just put themselves on pause. It's not that they abandon the faith or shake a fist in the face of God saying, how dare you? Most Christians who, who aren't pressing on, it's not that they reject Christianity. It's just that they stop pressing on. They find a premature place of settling. It can happen in a lot of different ways. Sometimes it happens when discouragement comes, when tragedy strikes, when something comes out of left field that God did not prevent and people get an offended spirit with God and you know they don't want to abandon God because they don't want to go to hell, but they don't want to keep pressing in because they no longer trust Him, so they just stop. Other times what, what can happen is people say, hey, I, I like where the Lord has brought me so far. And you know what? Things are going good. I'm, I'm, I'm in a little bit of a good vein here. And I think this is just where I'll stop. I like this. I go to church on Sundays. I'm paying my tithes. I, I do a little ministry here and there. I try to share my faith. I, I, I don't get drunk anymore. I only swear twice a week. And, you know, I'm feeling really good. This is good. This is, this is the womb right here. I'm just going gonna to hang out here. And I know people don't phrase it that way, but it's kind of the thought process. And people just, what they do is they say, this is good enough. By the way, when the children of Israel were crossing into the promised land, God said, I want all of the tribes to go over. You know, there were two tribes who, who got right up to the place where everybody else was going over. And they just said, hey, actually, there's a lot of work that's going to be out there. I tell you what, y'all take all that territory. We'll just take this territory here. And um, they were met with some resistance by the leaders. The leaders said, uh, um, you think your brothers are going to go to war and fight for the land and you're going to stop here prematurely? I tell you what, you can have this land, but you'll get it after you go over and fight for us, then you can come back to it. Th those two tribes represent that part of our human heart that says, yeah, I don't want to press on anymore. Um, 
I'm going to promise every single Christian in this room something. I'm going to promise you something. God has so much more ahead of you than he's ever had behind you. Listen, there's a reason why you have a brainwave and a heartbeat right now. It is because God's plan for you is not done. You know, there's a lot of us in the room that should have been out of here years ago because of our reckless living and defying God and living in ways that were just I mean, it's only by the grace of God that we're not in the grave or in prison somewhere. And, and when, you get, when you get that kind of release and you recognize that God's given you a second chance, you, you, if, you're, if, you're, if you're pressing on, you want to make the most of it. But you don't have to get delivered from all sorts of sin and danger and all that stuff in the sense of, of your call to press on. You're here today because he has something for you today. And he has something for you tomorrow. But listen... God's not obligated to bring it to you where you just have decided to stand still. We have to, yeah, I'm just going to go ahead and bother the fool out of some of you because I can already tell you, y'all are getting a little hardcore with me here, but I love you. I'm just telling you the truth and love. I'm just saying I want to be like Paul and Paul wanted to be like Jesus. So in essence, I'm telling us all what we need to do if we ever plan on knowing him. We have to press on. Everybody in the rooms had their heart broken. I love you, but it is time to get over it. Everybody has experienced heartbreaking loss. We've all been betrayed. We've all been abused in some way, talked about or verbally or, or, or physically or mentally or sexually. All of us have experienced abuse. That can't be an anchor to your soul that prevents you from pr- pressing on. You have to take ownership of your life at some point. We cannot all just stand before the Lord and say, Lord, I can't move on because I'm a victim. Jesus will say, do you want to see wrongdoing? Let me take you to a place called Calvary. Let me take you to the cross. Let me tell you what it means to be done wrong, but to press on for the glory of the Father. So we must move on. You're not a victim. You're a victor in Christ. But you have to change the way you you allow yourself to think about these things. Paul said this, he says, I'm pressing on to make all of what the Lord has for me. I want to make it my own. He says, and here's the reason why, because Jesus made me his own. Do you see how he ties it back into the fact that the Lord chose him, the Lord chased him, the Lord cleansed him, delivered him, saved him, loved him, shepherded him, said, Paul, You're going to be my boy for all of eternity. I love you. You're my own. And something happened to Paul's heart, and he's like, he he loves me. He's done all that for me when I was actually against him. He's like, well, if if he's made me his own, I'm going to make him and everything that's in him, I'm going to make it my own, my life for you, Lord. He he tells his brothers and sisters in in the church at Philippi, He says, I don't consider that it's already happened. I'm paraphrasing there. He says, I haven't gotten there yet. But one thing I'm doing, I'm forgetting the things from the past. Forgetting those things that lie behind me. I don't do a lot of counseling anymore. I just, one, you got to have more compassion than I do to be an effective counselor. I'm just... (laughs) never been quite my forte Um, but I I do want to counsel you here because sometimes the gap between you and your destiny is whatever span of time you're choosing not to leave in the past that's the gap between you 
and everything that the Lord has for me. Even the good stuff. I mean, it's possible to just kind of revel in the glory days. And you can get, you can get so sentimental or tied into what, what God used to do or what God once did. And you can be looking in the rearview mirror at that and the Lord's saying, why don't you look ahead because I've got more. And then sometimes it's the bad stuff. Heartbreak, pain, failure, sin. I mean, one of, one of the greatest treasures, uh, Freddie, I don't know if you experienced this, but one of the greatest treasures of getting delivered from me was that God instantaneously clarified for me that I never had to walk in shame over my past again because it was under the blood of Jesus. It was fully purged. It was absolutely gone. Now, I'm not proud of those years, but I can tell you, I don't think about them ever in the sense of, oh, I need to make up for all that I did back then. You know what? It's under the blood. It's gone. The guy that did that stuff is dead. He died in 1994. He is dead and buried, and a new Jeff Lyle got raised up, and the new Jeff Lyle don't live like the old Jeff Lyle. So I don't want to walk around and say, oh, man, the 1980s, the 1980s, what was I doing? What was I thinking? You know, the early 2000s, whoa, Lord, what was I? Or 1990s, what was I doing, Lord? Um, Why don't you just go ahead and agree with the Lord that the past is the past? He's done with it. He's even done with the good parts of our past. Sometimes it's like the Lord saying, yeah, that was awesome. That was great. I'm glad you're thankful for it. I'm glad you're glorying in it. But if you keep focusing on what I did then, then you're going to miss what I'm doing now and what I'm going to do tomorrow. And God's, again, I say this all the time, but it's because it's important. God's not doing anything yesterday. He's not doing anything yesterday. It's, it's all wrapped up in that weird thing called time. And, and you can't do anything about it. And the more you look backwards, the more you're missing what he's saying, I'm doing this today. By the way, this is a word for churches of all flavors. Some churches, matter of fact, I have a friend who just left a ministry after pouring awesome preaching and teaching and leadership into this church for five years. He, he, he took the church at age 33 and he's 38 and he just resigned it and he poured himself into this church gave them every opportunity and they had as their mantra we shall not be moved they were never going to change and and all he did was give them gospel and give them truth and give them love but they were glorying in the past church has a massive i've been to the, the place it's in another state has a great complex and all these buildings and everything and they got like probably about 25 people now they have pictures on the wall about Sunday school in 1958. And some of them were still there then. I mean, they are still there now from them. Friends, look, we got all eternity to celebrate what the Lord did in the past. Be thankful from the past, honor the past, learn from the past, but don't live in the past. And don't worship the past. Today is the day in which God is working. And so he's saying, I choose to leave off what is behind me. I wonder what would happen. I'm just about done. I wonder what would happen if you legitimately chose to seal off yesterday, put it in the vault of history, and take all of that energy, time, thought, mental resources, emotional resources, and just said, I'm not going to put all of that in the vault with what 
what is done and what is finished. I'm going to take all of those resources. I'm going to focus into what is God saying today? What is God doing right now? What does God have for me tomorrow? And, and I, I think if the church could do just this one thing that Paul said he was doing, then we would be um, a whole lot closer to living in that resurrection power. Part of crucifying ourselves is dying to the past, even the good past. And so we can experience resurrection in the present. And then I'll give you this last one. Always, always, always pressing in for more. Always pressing in for more. Watch what he says here. He says, forgetting those things which are in behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Pre I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Listen to those words. Listen to those words. Paul was not a hyper-Calvinist that just said, God's going to do whatever God's going to do. It doesn't matter what I do. That, you don't get that theology from the Apostle Paul. Uh, the Apostle Paul <laughs> believed in predestination and election, but he didn't believe in a passive kind of approach to the Christian life where it's like God's going to do whatever he wants. We're just puppets on a string. He said, Paul says this, I am straining forward. It's actually an, an athletic term. It's a term that is used in uh, extra-biblical literature where they're writing of Olympic runners that are running towards the finish line and they're straining just to get one nose hair over the line before their opposition. They're putting everything within them to press into that victory and to win that race. So he actually says pressing on twice. He says straining forward and he says I'm doing it for the prize of my calling, the calling of my life for the glory of God in Christ Jesus. You see, Paul just didn't live in this mental, emotional kind of place of being fond of God. Paul's like, I want to press into everything that he has for me. I'm gonna tell you something. Get aggressive. Get aggressive. Get aggressive with the Lord. Get aggressive with your life. I know we're not supposed to toil and strive in the flesh. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about maximizing the capacity that God has assigned to you. Paul would say to young Timothy, fan into flame the gift that you've got. It wasn't, it's not enough to have the gift. Paul said, Timothy, you've got the gift. I, you got it when we put our hands on you, laid our hands on you. You've got the gift, but son, put some, put some wind on it. Fan it into a flame. So in other words, Paul would say in a different place, whatever you do, do it heartily as unto God and not unto man. So whatever it is that you feel like God has, has kind of situated you for, or gifted you for, or, or brought you into this earth for, if you know what that is, don't be passive about it. No mild salsa. <laughs> That's going to be the only thing some of y'all remember about the whole message. <laughs> I go to a, a Mexican place. They have it like the little tag out there. I'm always wanting the one with like the, the face, the cartoon face of the guy weeping because it's so hot. That's just, listen, there are just things that mildness and restraint and, you know, some misappropriation of being polite and and all, where are the warriors? You know, 
I'm just, right now I'm picturing Braveheart running through my mind. You know, I'm just like, what, but where are they? When did the greatest fruit of the Spirit become being dignified and polite? Friends, Paul says, I'm pressing on, I'm pressing on. I've got to get the prize. I'm straining. He's pouring everything within him out of him. When we pick up next time, we'll, we'll do the other half of this message next time, but um, between now and then, I'm, I'm go ahead and stand to your feet. That lets you know you're really getting to leave. So. I, I just, I, I believe this with all my heart. That some of you have limited yourselves. It's not God that's limited you. It's not the devil. It's just you're waiting on permission to be full throttle the man or the woman or the young person that God's called you to be. And you have the permission. Matter of fact, we didn't get to the verse, but Paul said, what you see in me, do that. So it's actually in the Bible. This is not a pep rally. This is me saying the Bible, God's word, is inviting you, calling you, dare I say it, expecting of you to turn it up a notch and to, with wild abandon, go after everything that he's got for your life. So Father, just keep this fresh in our hearts, Lord. Raise up the warriors, Lord. Turn our whispers into roars. Turn our dill pickles into habaneros. <laughs> Put some flame on us, Holy Spirit. We choose to fan into flame. And God, when we see others do it, rebuke our pride if we're offended that they're being a little high octane. Raise up the volume on your church, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.